Well, g'day everybody. I'm Sam. And I'm Mike. And we are the Extras. Welcome back, Sam. Hey, it's good to be back. Turn three, here we are. How was your holiday, mate? Fantastic. Yeah, had a couple of, couple of weeks away from church, holidays with the family. Uh, it was delightful. Had we, a really good time we, we missed you in the Extras land, though, mate. Yeah, we did the Extras. Yeah, we've had a bit of a hiatus. Mate, absolutely. But we it's missed good, you. Yeah, it's good to be back. <laughs> it's good to um, be here in a new term, Book of Revelation. Back in Revelation. Here we are. This, this, this is good because... Uh, we, so we, we started off Revelation end of last year. That's right. Uh, we did chapters one to five. Yep. That was fantastic. We've had a bit of a break in, in Genesis. We've been in Proverbs. Uh, now we're back and we're going to we're gonna finish the book this term. Really. God willing, that's the plan, mate. God Absolutely. Willing. And uh, we're off to a cracker on our first week. So we've had uh, yourself uh, at some of the services. We've had Mark Adams from Sydney, Sydney Missionary and Bible College uh, in some of the other services over the weekend. And we've covered chapter six and seven. Uh, remind us, Mike, where were we Sunday night? What does chapter 6 and 7 deal with? Yeah, chapter 6 and 7, it's all about Jesus, the slaughtered lamb. He takes the scroll, he opens the seal. What's going to happen? What's the seals? What's the scroll all about? Well, it's all about uh, the next stage of God's plan for salvation and for judgment uh, on this world. And so judgment is laid out on planet earth and it's horrific and it's scary and it's awful and the key question at the end of chapter six is who can stand before the wrath of god and then chapter seven actually gives us the answer that it's those who are sealed by god in other words who uh, god has chosen to be his it's those who cry out for salvation it's those who uh, are prepared to fight the good fight uh, fight for Jesus, fight with Jesus, fight like Jesus, fight like a lamb. Um, and then it's also those who endure, those who come through the great tribulation. They're the ones who stand. Mm. And it, it, it's great to be reminded again on, on Sunday night that, it, that this judgment that's kind of being um, revealed in these two chapters is not just not only an end times, end of the world judgment, although that is to come. Yes. Um, there's even a sense in which this is a, a description of the, the, the life that we're in now in this in-between the ages time where, we, where Christ has died, risen, ascended on high and yet hasn't yet returned. And even now the judgment of God that we read in 6 and 7 is, is being played out. That's exactly right. Uh, Revelation one nineteen, Jesus tells John to write down the things that are now and the things that will take place. Mm. And we often get a little bit confused with Revelation when we only think it's the what will take place and forget that it's also the now. And so, yes, this this wrath is uh, being visited on planet Earth even now as we speak, but mm. there is more to come. Yeah, And that's why we cry out, how long, mm. O Lord? Yeah. And, and now, obviously, as we move further away from chapters 1 to 5, we, we get, I think, in many people's sort of biblical knowledge, a little bit out of the familiar part of Revelation, a little bit more into the, the murkier part that we might have read, haven't really got our heads around yet. Yeah, it gets pretty weird. Which means that there's <laughs> there's lots of questions, and, and actually that's what we're here to do, that's what the extras is all about, is to engage with the questions that particularly have come in through night church, uh, as we take questions via text message, um, and do our best to try and think those through and, and unpack them. There's some good questions this week, and yeah, this is pushing us along, which which is helpful. Um, and, and I guess we want to put the encouragement out there to keep keep asking questions, particularly as Revelation, you know, doesn't feel as familiar perhaps as um, other bits of the Bible. Um, this is a really great opportunity to to work work hard and get our heads around what what God is doing in the world. 
Yeah, yeah. And so if you're uh, if you've got questions you want to ask us and you're not sure how, maybe you can uh, text us or you can email the office at church or email Sam or I directly. Ask your growth group leader and ask them to pass on the questions. Um, we we really value your questions. They're very helpful for us. And um, the feedback we're getting from the extras is it's actually helpful for other people as they yeah. engage with the questions that perhaps you've asked. That's it. Maybe we need a. Well, we'll work on this. We need a, a, a the extras email. You know, like the extras app nice. or whatever it is. But, nice. Uh, let's see what we can do. I'm not, not, we'll, we'll we'll work on that this week. All right. Let, let's dive in. We've got lots to do today. So, Mike. Um, uh, yeah, we've got. Uh, let's just start with a, a reminder of uh, the big picture of Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sam. So before we dive into specific questions, um, some tips, I guess, just to keep in mind as we read Revelation. A um, couple of tips are. Uh, when you read Revelation, keep the big picture in mind. Um, we won't be able to nail down all the details and uh, that's okay. Keep the big picture in mind. And the big picture is really, Revelation is all about Jesus. Revelation 1 verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus. And so we want to keep that, keep reminding ourselves, big picture, it's all about Jesus. If we can't identify each specific symbol in the book, that's okay. Keep the big picture in mind. Um, as you keep the big picture in mind, keep in mind the genre. All right? This is a highly symbolic literature. And so we've got to keep asking ourselves, what is this symbolizing? Maybe not uh, who does this uh, equal, um, but what does this symbolize is perhaps a better question. Mm. Um, another tip is keep the Old Testament in mind. Uh, so much of the kind of the weird stuff and the unusual stuff is actually not as weird or unfamiliar as we think it is because often it's something that we've read in the Old Testament. And so we keep pushing back in the Bible to find some of the answers to our questions in in Revelation. I think uh, on that, yeah. one of the most helpful things um, that I uh, had pointed out to me as a younger Christian was to invest in a good cross-reference Bible, to have a, a Bible that has center column cross-references and, and a good kind of concordance built in. Uh, not not necessarily one of those study Bibles that gives you the answers. I'm not so, <laughs> not so keen on those. Yep. Uh, but the center column ones, because that way, it, if there's an allusion or a reference back to something Old Testament, you can look at it and go, oh, actually, this is referencing Zechariah or this is referencing Ezekiel and I can get my head nice. back there and, and read the prophet who it's referencing and kind of um, yeah get my head around the original context of that image to understand Revelation. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah, I use my cross-reference Bible all the time. In fact, I'm holding it in my hand right now. Uh, Just last tip, and there's plenty more to come, but last tip. uh, Revelation is part of scripture that is to be kept. Chapter 1 verse 3. Blessing comes to those who keep this word. And so as we're wrestling with the details, um, a good question to ask yourself is, can my understanding of Revelation or my interpretation of a Revelation be kept, be obeyed? And uh, keep pushing yourself to not just kind of um, uh, how do I kind of interpret this, but how do I keep this is really, really important. Really helpful. All right. Question number one, Mike. Here we go. Yeah. Um, Revelation 6 begins with an image of these four horsemen, colored horses. Um, uh, Simple question. Who are they? (laughs) Simple question. They're all simple questions in Revelation, aren't they? Going back to our tips, uh, we've got to know our Old Testament. Revelation 6, the horsemen, different colors and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, where, where have we seen that before in Scripture? Well, that's uh, Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 6 um, give us that image, those, uh, those symbols uh, before Revelation. And so in Zechariah 1 and 6, these four horsemen and their riders are symbolic of the last days. They're symbolic of God's judgment and God's salvation. And so you read of the horsemen and, and uh, we get some detail in Revelation 6 of kind of what they symbolize. They symbolize kind of power and war and an absence of peace and kind of economic hardship and, and, and a shortness of supply and food. There's famine and plague and actually death. These are all signs of God's judgment that come in the last days. And so rather than kind of looking forward and trying to identify, well, which one's the white horse or which one's the black horse or who's riding it and, you know, um, actually go back in the scriptures and go, oh, now I can see what it symbolizes. Last days, judgment and salvation. I guess the point that Revelation is trying to help us to see is that those things don't happen um, in a way that is disconnected from God himself. God is the authority over those things, which is something we need to then wrestle with theologically, which is how does God stand behind uh, things like suffering and yeah. Uh, yeah, difficulty. And and, and, um, and Revelation 6 is, is trying to help us to see that um, they're his means of judgment on the earth and on people e- even now. That's right. Yeah, because it's Jesus is the one who opens these seals that mm. makes these horsemen come forward that's right so jesus is standing behind all this and yeah. you kind of go oh okay that's kind of a bit different to perhaps how i and i guess that that corrects even challenges a, a really common view of god which is you know god is responsible for all the good stuff and mm. uh, if there's bad stuff god's got nothing to do with that god you know um because god is just love you know that, that very simple um which is true god, is, god love, is love but in his love god is um is one who brings justice absolutely one who, who, which is judgment and i think um some people feel pretty uncomfortable with that idea but um we, we've got to go with the god of the bible here which is the, and this is the god who is portrayed for us in revelation 6 that he is a god of of terrifying justice and judgment yep and we should be afraid i mean part of you know, we do love God, absolutely, but we should also fear God. Mm. And both love and fear of God should drive us to worship Him and to obey Him. Mm. Okay. Um, well, it's kind of connected to that. Um, the next question we've got here uh, picks up the next image that Revelation uh, chapter 7 opens up for us, which is it moves from four horsemen now to four winds. Uh, some translations for spirits, I think. Um, can you shed a bit of light for us on those four winds? Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for the person who asked this question. Um, it's interesting, you go back to Zechariah 6 again, where we first met the four horsemen, and those same four horsemen are also uh, identified or called the four winds or the four spirits, the, the kind of word, I think it's ruah, is that right? Ruach, yeah. Ruach, yeah, with a... Yeah, a thank you, thank you. Gotta, you. <laughs> to be in Hebrew, you've got to have a good guttural kind of... Uh, fabulous, yeah, fabulous. Thing. Um, so I take it the four horsemen and the four winds are one and the same. Um, perhaps just looking at it at a slightly different angle. Uh, and so what's fascinating, uh, you dig into uh, this in Revelation 6 and 7, is um, the four winds are kind of held back until God's people are sealed. Uh, and then the four winds are kind of let loose. 
makes you think probably Revelation 7 actually happens before Revelation 6, because in Revelation 6, kind of all hell does break loose or has broken loose with the four horsemen already going out. In chapter 7, it hasn't happened yet until God seals his mm. people. So that gives us another little kind of clue to how to read Revelation is it's not always consecutive. Sometimes it's concurrent or sometimes it's even kind of out of kind of time mm. order. So it's almost like you see the devastation of the judgment of God in chapter 6 and you're kind of left with a, what's that going to mean for the for the people of God? Who is able to stand? Who's going to be able to stand That's in That's the this? question. And then 7 kind of relieves that tension a little bit and sort of says, well, don't worry. The, 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 those who God seals are the ones who are going to be able, able to stand. To stand. And they, they, God will... They will go through this, but God has his mark, his seal yep. on them, and, and they're sort of his. Great confidence that we can have, great assurance that we can have, because God seals us, God chooses us before we choose him, that mm. we will be able to stand on the day of wrath. Mm. Okay. Um, pushing into seven a little further, there's a question here about uh, the, the 144,000 that are outlined for us at the start of chapter seven. Uh, and then they sort of... Uh, it flicks on from being a very carefully numbered group. <laughs> we then meet this n- numberless multitude. Yeah. And um, the question's coming, how do those two images fit together? Why are there two groups here? Yeah, it almost sounds like there's kind of two groups in heaven. You've kind of got the, mm. the tribes of Israel and then you've got all the, all the rest. Um, uh, is that right? Are there two kind of groups in heaven? I don't think there are. Um, how do we understand this? This is really cool. Okay, there's a lovely little pattern in Revelation where John often hears of something and then sees something else. And often the two seem completely different and yet they're one. So, prime example, Revelation chapter 5. John hears of the line of the tribe of Judah. Then he sees the slaughtered lamb. Now, are they two different things? No, Revelation 5 says they're the one thing. The lion is the lamb, but of course no one would have put that together. You know, How can the lion of the tribe of Judah be a slaughtered lamb? That doesn't fit together, but they do. That's the beauty of the gospel. The king is the sacrifice. And so similar pattern here in Revelation 7, you've got John hears of the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, and then he sees the vast multitude. How do they fit together? They're the one group. Two different angles um, describing the one reality, which is the people of God who are sealed, who have cried out for salvation. That's really helpful. So that tip, and that's something we can look out for as we go on in Revelation, isn't it? When you see the word hear, you're almost looking for the word see to, to sort of come afterwards. And then you've got the job of, okay, okay, these are two angles on the same reality. How do I put them together? Fantastic. Yeah, it'll come up again, so keep an eye out for that pattern. All right. Now, so if that's the case then, yep. what are the two angles here? We've got this very carefully crafted, numbered, you know, 12,000 times 12,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Yep. Uh, then we've got this vast, every you know, beyond Israel, every nation, um, which no one can number. Yeah. Uh, what, how do those, what do those two angles tell us? Yeah, 144,000. Uh, it's interesting on many fronts. Um, the number 12 is a kind of a number of completion. We know of the 12 tribes, obviously, and the 12 um, d- disciples. 
Um, 12 is a, a key number of completion. 1,000 is a big number in Revelation. It's kind of like bigger than you can imagine almost. That's the idea of 1,000. So 12,000 times 12,000 is, is a big crowd, mm. right? From the tribe of Israel. So like the full number. If yeah, think. yeah, like a full number. That's that's a good way to put it. Um, but what's interesting, even I think even more interesting is, um, again, tip, go back to your Old Testament. When in the Old Testament is Israel numbered? It's in the book of Numbers. Now, why are they numbered in the book of Numbers? Because they're getting ready for battle. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. Mm. And so the census is taken to see, to prepare them for battle, prepare them for for war, prepare them to fight. Mm. And I think that's what this symbol is getting at in Revelation 7, is that God's people are those who are prepared to fight. Mm. Those who are prepared to fight for Jesus, prepared to fight with Jesus and prepared to fight like Jesus. And so we're called in Revelation to fight like the lamb. Mm. So how did the lamb fight? Well, he sacrificed himself. He loved and served and he worshipped God in full obedience. And I take it that's the way that we are to fight the Christian fight in light of Revelation. Revelation 7 is really a call to arms to say, will you fight like a lamb? Will you Mm. sacrifice? Will you serve? Will you love and worship and obey God? Mm. And so theologically, we, we, we call this idea that the church militant, don't we? The, the, the idea of God's people. And it's, it's not an image we use much, the idea of a military kind of uh, army of God's people. I think it's something we've lost over the last little while. Yeah, yeah, we should all go, you know, join the Salvation Army, shouldn't uh, we, Sam? Well, at least we could sing Onward Christian Onward Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war. That's it. But it's interesting that the, that the image of Christian fighting, Christian warfare, there's a big contrast here, perhaps, say, let's say to um, Islam. Uh, Islam calls you to uh, take up arms and to be militant, if yes. you like, um, and yet it is through through violence and through sort of subduing your enemies, whereas uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ calls you to arms, but as you said, like Jesus. Um, fight like the lamb. Fight by sacrificing yourself. That's it. Which is a bit of a kind of uh, contrast, not a contradiction, but a, a sort of... Um, yeah, so there's a word there that I'm looking for. <laughs> and, uh, you can leave it in the comments. Sure. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, it, it feels completely unnatural, doesn't it? The way you fight is to sacrifice yourself mm. i mean that's just weird but that's exactly what jesus did for us that's how jesus won the victory exactly mm. exactly so just as jesus is the slaughtered lamb as he is the faithful witness mm. the faithful martyr so too are christians to follow the lamb that way so we've got that side of the image now yep. we move to the countless number from every tribe and nation and language yeah so we go from the church militant to yes. the church infinite mm. right um, and I love this fact that um, the church is so big that no one in heaven can count it. Now, you think there's pretty smart people in heaven, pretty smart beings in heaven. Um, they can count a lot. In mm. chapters 8 and 9, they've counted 200 million horsemen. So they can count a lot. They've got a lot of fingers to count on. And yet they can't get... The church is going to be so big that they can't even count it. And uh, what, what's this a symbol of? Um, this is the symbol of those who have called out for salvation. That's what marks the 144,000. Uh, sorry, not the 140,000. The, 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 the vast multitude. multitude. Um, so it's, it's those who cry out for salvation. Um, but it, I think it's also just a symbol that's supposed to empower us because we as the church feel like we're pretty small fry in Australia. We're a fraction of a percent of the whole population. And yet we are some part of something that's 
enormous. Mm. And so I take it that this should encourage us to keep fighting and keep enduring and mm. keep crying out for salvation. Nice. Okay. Um, on the 12,000 list there in verses 4 to 8, yep. um, someone's noted that the tribe of Dan is sort of obvious by its omission. <laughs> it's not there. And uh, it feels a bit weird. It says from every tribe of the Israelites, and then it just glaringly leaves out the tribe of Dan. Uh, poor old Dan. Yeah. yeah Where what, did Dan go? What's happened? Uh, look, uh, I've done a bit of reading around this, and it's a little bit unsure why. Uh, a lot of the great ones aren't quite sure. But um, there is a uh, perhaps the best guess we've got is that in the Old Testament, uh, Dan seems to be, perhaps even more than the other tribes, um, uh, more, uh, more likely to be idolatrous. They're often kind of hammered for being idolatrous. And it could be they're left out of the list because a big theme in Revelation is who do you worship? Mm. Are you going to worship the one on the throne and the lamb? Or are you going to worship the beast and the dragon? And and so maybe they're missed out, left out of the list because they have this history of idolatry. And, and so there's a subtle little kind of um, encouragement here not to be idolatrous mm. like the tribe of Dan. So we, if we want to go chase that down... Um, one Chronicles, I think it's maybe 18, right? Yep. somewhere there. Um, we, we can see a little bit of an instance of, uh, I think that's right, you're, you're checking your Bible, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> um, yeah, where, where we see that, that image of, of, uh, of the tribe of Dan sort of deserting. Um, and I think from memory, because they are in the north, they, they become the centre of, of the, the, the rebel worship that it was meant to happen in Jerusalem. That's and right. When the two bits of Israel sort of split in half... Um, I think it's the tribe of Dan that becomes the, the, the sort of centre for um, the, the alternate worship. Yeah, uh, they set up altars, don't they, in the north? That's and, exactly and, right. Uh, yeah, they're kind of working completely against the whole idea of coming to Jerusalem. Coming to, um, yeah, coming, the whole of Israel should be coming down to Jerusalem and Judah, uh, which they're not. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I hope that's right. We'll, we'll, we'll chase that up. Um, while, while you're hunting, I might read us out our next... Um, Next question here, which is also on this list of uh, tribes, and someone's asking the question about why is Judah listed as tribe number one? Yeah, so the another the other anomaly of this list is that in the Old Testament, Judah is normally kind of four or five in the in the birth order, uh, but promoted to number one on the list. And so, why is that? Well, a couple of cool reasons. One, you go back to Revelation five, and Jesus is the line of the tribe of. Judah. And so this is just emphasizing Judah's tribe and the king, the lion, Jesus, who comes from that tribe. And so uh, you can see that in Revelation 5. But you go back even further again to your Old Testament. We keep going back to the Old Testament um, to Genesis 49. And uh, the prophecy there is that the king will come from Judah and all the other brothers, all the other tribes will bow down to Judah. And so really, Revelation 7 is kind of a fulfillment, the fulfillment of um, Judah being so prominent. Uh, and uh, that's why Jesus came from Judah. Nice. Um, yep. Very helpful, mate. Very helpful. All right. Uh, we will push on. Um, someone's asking a question about the, the seals mm. uh, that we read about. Chapter 7, verse 2, um, God is going to seal his followers. Um, someone's been reading ahead, which is fantastic, um, and noting that later on in the book of Revelation, um, 
the Satan also wants to put a seal on his, or at least a mark, Revelation 13, the mark of the beast. Yep. Um, how do those two marks differ, and, and how do we know? Fantastic. Um, good pickup. Uh, thank you for this question. Uh, what does the seal signify? Well, the seal signifies ownership, okay? And for God, he seals his people. He, he, he wants to protect his people, and that's why he seals them as his very own. When Satan seals or marks his people, it's with a false offer of protection, but he actually seals them in order to torment them. That's what we find out in Revelation 9, is that Satan's people um, get sucked in by Satan as they worship him, but instead of getting protection and um, love and all those great things that come from being with God, they actually get tormented and uh, cursed by by Satan. Um, and so they're obviously completely different. And what Revelation keeps doing is um, putting before us the fact that God offers so much uh, grace and love and forgiveness and protection and blessing. Satan puts himself in parallel with God and, and on the surface offers the same sorts of things, but of course Satan never delivers. In fact, he delivers the exact opposite. And that's why um, kind of idolatry um, is so seductive because it keeps promising us, promising us things of life and blessing, and but it never delivers because only God is God and only God is worthy of our worship. So that's the difference. Uh, the second half of the question though is kind of how do we know if you like, which seal or which mark we've got, because mm. presumably, you know, you can't see God's name written on your forehead or hopefully you haven't got 666 tattooed on your body or something mm. like that. So how do you know? Well, Revelation 7 is helpful in this because those who are sealed are those who cry out for salvation. They're those who fight like a lamb and they're those who endure. And so if you're someone who has cried out for salvation, if you're fighting like a lamb, if you're enduring then you can have confidence that God's seal is on you. Mm. Um, if you're not doing those things, it may be that you are at the moment with the with Satan. Mm. Um, now, you don't have to stay there. Um, and Revelation 9, great call, an urgent call for everyone to repent uh, if you're not with God. Um, and so if you can see in your own life that you haven't cried out for salvation, that you're not fighting like a lamb and you're not enduring, then Revelation would say, repent and turn back to God and you can be one of his mm. sealed people. That's it. And there's great confidence there because um, those who do call out, those who do repent, um, God will seal. Absolutely. Jesus will save. Absolutely. And, you, know, you, you don't have to guess anymore. Yes. You, all you need to do is turn, out and t turn and repent and call out. Absolutely. Great confidence. And isn't the gospel awesome? <laughs> totally. On the gospel, um, this is actually, I think, our last question for, the, for this episode. Um, we, we did touch this one briefly on Sunday night, if you were there. Um, and the question is, look, why did God's plan for salvation and the, this whole opening of the seals that we've been reading about, why did that have to be accompanied by so much suffering for, for Christians and for, for Jesus himself? Mm. Couldn't God have just come up with a plan that made it easier? <laughs> That's a really, really good question. Um, I think at the heart of the question or the heart of the answer is you've got to look at the seriousness of sin. Um one of the problems we have 
even as Christians, is we just don't take sin as seriously as God takes sin. Um, we perhaps think that sin is just, you know, the mistakes we make or um, just a light matter. But sin is ginormous. Like, it's just huge. And it is so wicked and so offensive to our holy God that God can't just sweep sin under the carpet. Um, for, for God to do that would make him unjust and actually unholy and unloving, actually. Sin is just so huge that it took the death of God's one and only Son to deal with our sin. I mean, that, that's just enormous. Um, so big are the consequences of our sin. Um, and so on the cross, God enacts both justice but also mercy on us sinners because Jesus took the punishment for us. But the kind of the... The, the age we're in now kind of continues God having to right wrongs and fight for injustice and cleanse the world of sin. And that's why it's still a mess we're in. Um, and that's going to keep happening until Jesus returns one day and finally kind of wraps the whole thing up. Mm. But yes, it, is a, means, it does mean that uh, there is pain and suffering in the world. But ultimately, we don't blame God for that. We blame our own sinfulness for that. That's exactly right. And, and I mean, Romans chapter 1 picks up that, um, that idea, in, in a, I guess, in a non-apocalyptic, non-image kind of way, that, that even now the wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteousness of, of humans and, and our... And I think you're right. We don't think about our wickedness as deserving... Um, any kind of judge. I think we sometimes catch a glimpse of it when, when we hear of a crime, perhaps a crime against a child or, or a crime against a, a woman, and that goes unpunished. That that yeah. is where where there yeah. isn't justice, and we yeah. and we think that's not fair. It shouldn't. Be, that should not be allowed to kind of go through to the keeper. That must be dealt with because that is just awful and yes. terrible and serious. Um, God sees all of our sin like that because even worse than a sin against a child or a sin against a woman is, is sin against the most holy God and mm. I think too often we, we're particularly with ourselves I guess and me included here we're too quick to say look it doesn't matter that much but that, <laughs> that, I guess that shows how little we understand God and how little we understand just how offensive our rebellion against him is um, that, that we start to think that, that look, God could just let it go couldn't he and mm. couldn't we just go straight to the new creation without any of that suffering and mm. pain and judgment mm. um, no no sin needs to be and the, the great wonderful thing of the gospel is Jesus takes that willingly on himself he says I'll step in and take punishment so that justice can be done and you, and you can go free yeah. that's a great thing of the gospel the gospel is wonderful now obviously yes we live in a time now of judgment as well as salvation being available and I mean if you are struggling with that as we all do you know at various degrees then I take it the answer is, according to Revelation 6, is to cry out to God how long mm. and to long for Christ to return, long for this world to be com completely made right one day. And that's the great hope that we that's have, it. that this will happen. And so keep crying out to God in your pain and in your suffering. Mm. Uh, keep longing for Jesus to return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And keep enduring um, because it will be hard. You can't just kind of drift along as a Christian. You actually have to endure. You have to persevere. You have to be intentional. You need to fight. 
um, because it's going to be hard. But Revelation keeps saying it's going to be worth it. That's it. And, and I mean, maybe we can kind of wrap, wrap up with this, but um, Monday night we gathered all of our growth group leaders together for a bit of a Revelation training, thinking to help us in our growth groups. Um, the presenter on that night, Mark Stevens, who, who actually will be coming to preach at St Paul's in a couple of weeks' time, yeah. um, made this beautiful distinction where he said, look, one of the little images, one of the little things you can catch in Revelation 6 and 7 is that it, it, God does two things. He both brings judgment, but then he, he, he finishes in chapter 7 with this beautiful picture of comfort and, and even uh, wiping away the tears of his people. And, mm. and if you like, he's, he's still responsible and oversees the judgment, and yet he does seem to outsource that a little bit. <laughs> the, he's, he's standing right behind it. God is the judge. God is the one who brings justice. But it is these horsemen and these winds, mm. and yet it is he himself at the end of chapter 7 who personally, intimately takes each of his children onto his knee and, and then wipes their tears. And so as we suffer and as we do it tough in the Christian life, our future and our certain hope is that the day is coming where God will comfort us and God will will just personally, mm. intimately love us and, and yeah, uh, wipe our tears away. And it's, just, it's a beautiful thought. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Indeed. We'll leave it there for the questions. Mike, quick um, look at point us ahead for this Sunday. Uh, we're into Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. Yeah, yeah. So Revelation 8 and 9, quite, if you read it, and please do before Sunday, it, it'll sound quite similar to 6 and 7. And you kind of go, what's going on here? We're kind of, kind of starting again with a whole lot more judgment and wrath and... We're probably not starting again, but what Revelation 8 and 9 does is kind of um, uh, give us a, an insight into the same reality of the world we're living in now and the, the judgment that's now and the judgments to come. But it does it from a slightly different angle, a slightly different camera angle, if you like. And Revelation's going to do this for us multiple times. Um, and I take it the the purpose of this different angle on our world today and the, the wrath to come is... Uh, 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 an urgent call to repent for the Christian, uh, sorry, for the non-Christian to repent. But even for the Christian, there's going to be an urgent call to keep repenting of our sin in light of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do as he comes back. Mate, I'm looking forward to it. It's yourself and Dave Kewen preaching this Sunday. That's that right. should be great. We'll be praying for you guys. Uh, quick correction before we finish. It wasn't 1 Chronicles 18. It was Judges 18. Thank that you. That is the, uh, the reference if you want to go chase up some of Dan's idolatry. Um, really helpful. Uh, that's it for us this week. We'll see you at church on Sunday. We'll see you next week on the extras. Keep your questions coming through. And until then, see you later. See ya. Bye.